0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 146. Oi! This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And holiday travel in Craftlet, taking you to London, Bath, and Wales. There are still a few seats available. Please visit the craftlet.com site and learn more by clicking on the holiday travel link in the upper right hand corner. Well, hello! I. <laughs> Oi. It's a. Uh it hurts. So that whole headache thing, it's still going on and it's really a drag. I've cut out everything. I've cut out caffeine, I've cut out artificial sweeteners, I've cut out sugar, I've cut out everything and my head still hurts. But in a week I will be able to see a neurologist and God willing in the creeks don't rise, somebody will be able to tell me what to do. I've had lovely, lovely emails from those of you who have survived this kind of headache though. Um, your numbers are legion so you know at least I have company and I know that I know that that survival rate is very high (laughs) for this kind of thing so that makes me feel better but um but yeah you know the headache thing's a drag it makes it really hard to grade papers that's been very difficult so what are you going to do about it eh? So today we're going to have chapter 22. We are closing in on the end of the book. It's very exciting. And um, today's another scaffold scene marketplace thing. So you have that to look forward to. If you are tuning in for the first time, please feel free to go back to craftlit.com and go to the library and you can download all the old podcasts there. But you'll have to do it one at a time because those are the mp3 files. If you want to do it more easily, iTunes or a podcast aggregator with craftlit.libsyn.com slash rss should get you everything you need. And email me at heather at craftlit.com if something goes wrong and you need some help. Well, crafty-wise, this last week has been kind of interesting. I found a book. You remember me saying oh, I don't know, we may have been back on, golly, it might have been back on Little Women, that I was kind of frustrated with books that are out there on journaling. And mostly it was because the journals that people were um, publishing, or the the kinds of books that were being published about journaling, had journals that were very art-oriented. They were like altered books and You know, really spectacular things that obviously took a lot of planning. And I don't have time for that. And I can't carry that stuff around with me. And I really wanted whatever I was going to do to be portable. Well, if you have experienced the same frustration and really want to get some, you know, interesting ideas on what you could do with journals and maybe some techniques to use, ways to draw attention to certain places that you've been so that you remember more, that kind of thing, take a look. I got this from our library. At a book called *The Decorated Journal*: Creating Beautifully Expressive Journal Pages. It's by a woman named Gwen Dean. I think that's how you pronounce her name, or maybe it's Dine. It's D-I-E-H-N. So, any of my German speakers, you just let me know. She does a wonderful job of taking you kind of step through, step by step through um, the possibilities of what you can do with a journal. Her stuff is very simple and very straightforward and beautiful. She also includes information on how to make your own little portable journals, like, you know, build one to the size and specifications that you actually like. And that to me seemed like a great thing. So as a consequence, because I have no job except teaching and I'm almost done grading my papers and there's a lot of free time right now. I'm cleaning rooms and reorganizing things, and it's great, except that I need an income. The, uh, the thing that I decided to do today was make paper. So I am, I'm making paper. I have no idea if it's going to wind up being a journal or not, but the paper is really pretty. All torn up sheets of stuff from the recycling bin. So I'm feeling very, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle today. That's, that's a good thing right? I'm repurposing lots of things. I'm making all my Christmas presents this year. So I'm doing some painting things for family members, but because they're sneaky and sometimes listen, I can't talk too much about that. All they can know is that they're going to get something from the heart and we'll just leave it at that. And uh, still trying to get the audio from my dad for Flatland. I think Flatland will probably be our next book. Um, Julie Davis and I have been uh, talking today back and forth about some book ideas for Forgotten Classics. If you've never tuned in, uh, take a look at Julie's Forgotten Classics podcast. It is well worth a listen, and she is the bravest woman in the world. She is slogging through, she's almost done with, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is, you know, that's yeoman's service to those of us who listen to audiobooks, because it's an important book, it's also a very frustrating book, and a very painful book in some ways, but, you know, whether apocryphal or not, somebody attributed to Lincoln the statement upon meeting Harriet Beecher Stowe. So, this is the little lady who started the Great War. And, you know, even if he didn't say it, I really like that quotation. (laughs) So, yay whoever made it up or yay lincoln and yay julie for taking on that mantle it's it's good for all of us to have access to the forgotten classics not to be forgotten however are our september incentive winners i have a few announcements to make drum roll first we have donna of Virginia who is walking away with our joy stitch markers and book uh, bookmark you are going to love them love love so congratulations Jana! I will get that out to you ASAP and then we have our next winner because this was you know a big month of incentive goodies uh, we have Erica Erica of California who is walking away with the fabricate book which is really good you're gonna like it and i know you're getting back into sewing and this this is going to turn a corner for you and for our big winner the mission falls kit we have penelope of connecticut yay we will get all those things out to you as soon as we can and you know even though you didn't win, go take a look at the Mission Falls page. The Mission Falls 136, I'm, I've told you before, I'm a big fan. And I think, I think it's worth picking up a a ball or two, Uh, especially if you want some really comfortable lying around the house socks, because, because that's what I made with them. And I just assume you'll want to do the same thing. Of course, right? A couple other little tidbits. Um, Michelle Malone, I haven't talked about her before. But I have talked about the Indigo Girls. Well, as the Indigo Girls were coming up in the Atlanta music scene, there was another fabulous musician. Her name is Michelle Malone. And my husband knew, hung out with, saw every concert by all of these uh, three women, Amy, Emily, and Michelle. And uh, Michelle is on Facebook. Michelle is on the web. And Michelle has a new CD. And if you like kind of jazzy southern rock um, kind of an Amy Ray voice, if you know what I mean, Uh, I think you should probably take a listen to Michelle Malone's new um, CD called Debris. If you go to her website, and there's a link from the craftlit.com show notes, you can listen to four songs from the album. Uh, I was listening to them while I was planning, you know, schematicizing (laughs) for the podcast today. And it's really, it's really, it's really good. She's really good. She's really good. I just wanted to give her a shout out you know, in my own little way, support support the people you care about. Because even before I was married to my husband, I was listening to all his bootleg tapes. <laughs> so I listened to a lot of Michelle Malone from way back in the day. And um, and she was great then, and she's great now. So yay, yay, fabulous people. I also have, for those of us who are, as many of us are, looking for ways to save money, <laughs> who isn't right now? I found a really interesting website that, uh, will help you learn to stretch your dollars. It's, it's, it's kind of like a blog, but the kind of, the nice thing about it, the thing that I really liked about it is it's written by a guy who was in hideous debt a couple of years ago and who just isn't anymore. So, you know, that kind of makes you feel better. It's like, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. This is okay. It's only a year or two and, and, uh, and you can crawl out from under any rock that you happen to have buried yourself under. And yay! It's all, you know, there's some good things out there. There really are. Another couple of good things, I have links to two different sites, amazing paper cutout art. I, I, the multi-crafter that you have known and listened to for some of you going on three and a half years, I will never ever attempt to do this. And if I do, I want you all to write and tell me to stop. (laughs) I am not this precise about anything. This is why I can't quilt. I can crazy quilt. I cannot actually quilt quilt. My aunt can. Oh, and I need to get, my aunt was down here visiting a little while ago. And I think I told you about some of the stuff she was working on. I have to get the names of those things for you and uh, and a link to one of the sites where you can buy them, I think you will want to. But uh, she's the one who can do the quilty stuff. Me, not so much. So this this paper cutout art, some of it's just amazing because of the intricate nature. It's like you know, uh, the House of Parliament, done in paper, except every column, every window, all of it is cut out. So it's just little paper frames tiny, tiny things, a shocking detail. And then uh, the other site I found interesting because it was really, um, you know how the first time you knit a catboardy Mobius scarf or bag or, you know, fill in the blank, cat fill in the blank, you know, it, it makes you look at geometry differently. Well, these paper cutouts make you do that too. They, they, Oh, oh, okay. One of them. Wonderful. It's a, you know, a huge piece of butcher paper, tall enough for a six foot person to have their silhouette on, which somebody did. And so you can see the cutout of the body in the paper, but then like Peter Pan's shadow, that cutout was never completely removed. So it's still attached to the feet and that piece, because it is an art exhibition and it's all laid out beautifully um, falls off the hanging piece of paper with the human cutout, and on the ground lying there is not the shadow of the person like Peter Pan it is a skeleton all cut from one piece of paper that's what I'm talking about pretty cool yeah you need to go look at these websites. And just because a lot of you do not live anywhere, anywhere near the Sonoran Desert. <laughs> okay, I know three of you do, but for the rest of you, thousands of people who don't live near the Sonoran Desert, there is this wonderful little, it's like 10 minute video that uh, Arizona 4-H did. And it's its a little extreme video on the Sonoran Desert. It's goofy and some parts that are very, very silly, but if you have children who have to research anything at all, you know, like come up with their own research project during the school year, this might be kind of an interesting thing for you to have them look at. It's 10 minutes long. It's definitely aimed at young people, younger than me, and they, um, I really, I appreciated the extent to which they give out useful information not just to people who don't live here but to people who do live here because as people move in you know we have people moving in from back east and they don't understand that it's a desert and you can't take a long shower or just let the water run while you brush your teeth or while you're washing dishes or you know whatever fill in the blank you know there's just there's not a whole lot of water so we need to save it you shouldn't have a sprinkler on your front. There are still businesses that I drive by. One of them was a school. I couldn't believe this. That have sprinklers going at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's like the hottest time of the day. All that water that's spraying in the air is evaporating. It's not, it's not really watering your grass. And why do you have grass anyway in the desert? Uh. And it's kind of, you know, it's just kind of silly because there are books like Rainwater Harvesting in the Desert, If you really wanna have a jungle and you live in the desert, read the book. Conserve the water that lands on your property. You can have fruit trees, you can have all this stuff without a whole heck of a lot of irrigation as long as you're kind of paying attention. So this little video starts to talk about the flora and the fauna and a little bit about um, the, the biome that we live within. The Sonoran Desert is very unique. There is no other desert on the planet like it. You'll find, you know, the Mojave Desert, yeah, it's kind of unique, but it's scrub brush and tumbleweed. You see that in different places, different versions of that, I think. I'm probably totally lying, and if my dad ever listens to this, he's going to go, oh my god, I taught her nothing. But you know, the Sahara Desert, this is what you think of when you think desert. You don't think Sonoran unless you watched a lot of Bugs Bunny, and Roadrunner cartoons, in which case you saw saguaros, those things with the arms, the big tall cactus. Um, And everybody seems to think, well, that's, that's what the desert looks like. Well, no, 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 no. That's what the Sonoran Desert looks like. Nowhere else will you find those cacti. So there were some really interesting things that they talked about in the video about the beasties and the plants that belong here that you can xeriscape, which requires very little water instead of landscaping, which the way it's done outside of the desert requires water. Um, but they also talk about invasive plants, which is a real problem here in the Sonoran Desert. The grass situation here is is not so good. And, uh, and they explain it really nicely in the video. So that might be, you know, if you have kids who need to research stuff for, I don't know, a science fair project they could do a little research on the Sonoran Desert. And, you know, they can email me and I can hook them up with somebody really cool at the university, maybe, if I go suck up to someone <laughs> and make really nice with the university professors. I can try and do that. But I, I just wanted to share those things with you because, you know, you learn a little bit about the larger world. Not a bad thing. And today, you'll learn a little bit about chapter 22 of The Scarlet Letter. But first, I wanted to give a little thank you to all of the people who went to kickstarter.com after my announcement last week, and some of you even pledged money. And wow, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your help and your support and, and for helping me find someone to help the podcast get even better for you. The web link to the Kickstarter page will appear on the show notes. If you are interested, please visit. You'll see that, you know, for even something as small as two bucks, you get a Craftlet sticker. So, <laughs> at least you get something back. So, today is chapter 22. And chapter 22 is, it's an interesting chapter because it's, um, it's very descriptive in the beginning and then it switches focus and becomes kind of Hester's chapter. And Hawthorne is definitely having fun at the beginning of this chapter, kind of chatting up um, Puritan society, and he's he's not entirely critical, but he does make a couple of interesting points that even though these people, and I think we talked about this last week, are people who ran from, at least in part, the pomp and circumstance of Elizabethan England, they still know how to put on a show and clearly this stuff still matters to them. So this is the procession. This is when everybody marches in and poor Hester has to stand there and watch Signor Dimmesdale, who appears different when he's out there in the middle of all this stuff that she thought he didn't buy into. And you can imagine how this would feel. And of course, we have Pearl, who's always dancing about and causing trouble but this chapter, I think for the first time since, uh, well, each scaffold scene deals with this. There's always this uh, tension between the public and the private, the the public world, which we see very clearly with Dimsdale, a public world that we see very clearly with Hester having to wear this badge on her, and the public world of Chillingworth's face that he puts on for society. Although, by this time, a few chapters back, they did mention that people had pretty much stopped loving the Chillingworth thing. So, you've got this kind of public environment and these public personas that these people have, and then there's the private world. And right now, you have Hester in public wrestling with her private life. You have Dimmesdale in public Wrestling with his private life, and you have Chillingworth, who it seems is doing just fine, and and loving the tension that is going on during uh, during this scene and, and the next chapter. So, actually, um, the other thing to to listen to Hawthorne kind of breaks the narrative at a couple play- places. He starts off the chapter examining Puritan society, which he's done from time to time, and he makes some commentary about that. And later, he's going to drop a bomb about one of the characters, you know, completely out of context. He's just gonna, you know, let you in on a little factual information, just kind of file away, makes a person a little more interesting, and um, that's kind of fun. He doesn't always do that. So, every once in a while, you get one of those moments, and, and this is one of those chapters, so yay! I think I'm going to let you listen to the audio now. No, I'm going to withhold it. I'm going to make you want more. No, Uh, this is chapter 22. And we only have chapters 23 and 24 after this. So here we are heading down that roller coaster quickly
1: toward the end. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 22, The Procession. Before Hester Prynne could call together her thoughts and consider what was practical to be done in this new and startling aspect of affairs, the sound of military music was heard approaching along a contiguous street. It denoted the advance of the procession of magistrates and citizens on its way towards the meeting house, where, in compliance with a custom thus early established and ever since observed, the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale was to deliver an election sermon. Soon the head of the procession showed itself with a slow and stately march, turning a corner and making its way across the marketplace. First came the music. It comprised a variety of instruments, perhaps imperfectly adapted to one another and played with no great skill, but yet attaining the great object for which the harmony of drum and clarion addresses itself to the multitude, that of imparting a higher and more heroic air to the scene of life that passes before the eye. Little Pearl at first clapped her hands, but then lost for an instant the restless agitation that had kept her in a continual effervescence throughout the morning. She gazed silently and seemed to be borne upward like a floating seabird on the long heaves and swells of sound. But she was brought back to her former mood by the shimmer of the sunshine on the weapons and bright armor of the military company, which followed after the music, and formed the honorary escort of the procession. This body of soldiery, which still sustains a corporate existence and marches down from past ages with an ancient and honorable fame, was composed of no mercenary materials. Its ranks were filled with gentlemen who felt the stirrings of martial impulse and sought to establish a kind of college of arms, whereas as in an association of Knights Templar, they might learn the science and, so far as peaceful exercise would teach them, the practice of war." The high estimation then placed upon the military character might be seen in the lofty port of each individual member of the company. Some of them, indeed, by their services in the Low Countries and on other fields of European warfare, had fairly won their title to assume the name and pomp of soldiership. The entire array, moreover, clad in burnished steel and with plumage nodding over their bright morions, had a brilliancy of effect which no modern display can aspire to equal. And yet the men of civil eminence, who came immediately behind the military escort, were better worth a thoughtful observer's eye. Even in outward demeanor, they showed a stamp of majesty that made the warrior's haughty stride look vulgar if not absurd. It was an age when what we call talent had far less consideration than now but the massive materials which produce stability and dignity of character a great deal more. The people possessed by hereditary right the quality of reverence, which in their descendants, if it survive at all, exists in smaller proportion and with a vastly diminished force in the selection and estimate of public men. The change may be for good or ill and is partly, perhaps, for both. In that old day, the English settler on these rude shores having left king, nobles, and all degrees of awful rank behind, while still the faculty and necessity of reverence was strong in him, bestowed it on the white hair and venerable brow of age, on long-tried integrity, on solid wisdom and sad-colored experience, on endowments of that grave and weighty order, which gave the idea of permanence, and comes under the general definition of respectability. These primitive statesmen, therefore, Bradstreet, Endicott, Dudley, Bellingham, and their compeers, who were elevated to power by the early choice of the people, seemed to have been not often brilliant, but distinguished by a ponderous sobriety rather than activity of intellect. They had fortitude and self-reliance, and in time of difficulty or peril stood up for the welfare of the state like a line of cliffs against a tempestuous tide. The traits of character here indicated were well represented in the square cast of countenance and large physical development of the new colonial magistrates. So far as the demeanor of natural authority was concerned, the mother country need not have been ashamed to see these foremost men of an actual democracy adopted into the house of peers or make the Privy Council of the Sovereign. Next, in order to the magistrates, came the young and eminently distinguished divine, from whose lips the religious discourse of the anniversary was expected. His was the profession at that era in which intellectual ability displayed itself far more than in political life. For, leaving a higher motive out of the question, it offered inducements powerful enough in the almost worshipping respect of the community to win the most aspiring ambition into its service. Even political power, as in the case of Increase Mather, was within the grasp of a successful priest. It was the observation of those who beheld him now, that never since Mr. Dimmesdale first set his foot on the New England shore had he exhibited such energy as was seen in the gait and air with which he kept his pace in the procession. There was no feebleness of step as at other times. His frame was not bent, nor did his hand rest ominously upon his heart. Yet, if the clergyman were rightly viewed, his strength seemed not of the body. It might be spiritual and imparted to him by angelical ministrations. It might be the exhilaration of that potent cordial which is distilled only in the furnace glow of earnest and long-continued thought. Or perchance his sensitive temperament was invigorated by the loud and piercing music that swelled heavenward and uplifted him on its ascending wave. Nevertheless, so abstracted was his look, it might be questioned whether Mr. Dimsdale even heard the music. There was his body moving forward, and with an unaccustomed force. But where was his mind? Far and deep in its own region, busying itself with preternatural activity, to marshal a procession of stately thoughts that were soon to issue thence. And so he saw nothing, heard nothing, knew nothing of what was around him but the spiritual element took up the feeble frame and carried it along, unconscious of the burden, and converting it to spirit like itself. Men of uncommon intellect who have grown morbid possess this occasional power of mighty effort, into which they throw the life of many days, and then are lifeless for as many more. Hester Prynne, gazing steadfastly at the clergyman, felt a dreary influence come over her, but wherefore or whence she knew not, unless that he seemed so remote from her own sphere and utterly beyond her reach. One glance of recognition she had imagined must needs pass between them. She thought of the dim forest with its little dell of solitude and love and anguish, and the mossy tree trunk where, sitting hand in hand, they had mingled their sad and passionate talk with the melancholy murmur of the brook. How deeply had they known each other then! And was this the man? She hardly knew him now. He, moving proudly past, enveloped, as it were, in the rich music, with the procession of majestic and venerable fathers, he so unattainable in his worldly position, and still more so in that far vista of his unsympathizing thoughts, through which she now beheld him. Her spirit sank with the idea that all must have been a delusion, and that vividly as she had dreamed it, there could be no real bond betwixt the clergyman and herself, And thus much of woman was there in Hester, that she could scarcely forgive him, least of all now, when the heavy footstep of their approaching fate might be heard, nearer, 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 for being able so completely to withdraw himself from their mutual world, while she groped darkly and stretched forth her cold hands and found him not. Pearl either saw and responded to her mother's feelings, or herself felt the remoteness and intangibility that had fallen around the minister. While the procession passed, the child was uneasy, fluttering up and down like a bird on the point of taking flight. When the whole had gone by, she looked up into Hester's face. Mother, said she, was that the same minister that kissed me by the brook? "'Hold thy peace, dear little pearl,' whispered her mother. "'We must not always talk in the marketplace of what happens to us in the forest.' "'I could not be sure that it was he. "'So strange he looked,' continued the child. "'Else I would have run to him and bid him kiss me now before all the people, "'even as he did yonder among the dark old trees. "'What would the minister have said, mother? "'Would he have clapped his hand over his heart and scowled on me and bid me be gone?' "'What should he say, Pearl?' answered Hester, "'save that it was no time to kiss, "'and that kisses are not to be given in the marketplace. "'Well for thee, foolish child, that thou didst not speak to him.'" Another shade of the same sentiment, in reference to Mr. Dimmesdale, was expressed by a person whose eccentricities, insanity as we should term it, led her to do what few of the townspeople would have ventured on, to begin a conversation with the wearer of the scarlet letter in public. It was Mistress Hibbins, who, arrayed in great magnificence, with a triple-rough, embroidered stomacher, a gown of rich velvet, and a gold-headed cane, had come forth to see the procession. As this ancient lady had the renown, which subsequently cost her no less a price than her life, of being a principal actor in all the works of necromancy that were continually going forward, the crowd gave way before her, and seemed to fear the touch of her garment, as if it carried the plague among its gorgeous folds. Seen in conjunction with Hester Prynne, kindly as so many now felt toward the latter, the dread inspired by Mistress Hibbins had doubled and caused a general movement from that part of the marketplace in which the two women stood. Now what mortal imagination could conceive it, whispered the old lady confidentially to Hester. Yonder divine man, That saint on earth as the people uphold him to be, and as I must needs say he really looks. Who now, that saw him pass in the procession, would think how little while it is since he went forth out of his study, chewing a Hebrew text of scripture in his mouth I warrant, to take an airing in the forest. Aha, we know what that means, Hester Prynne. But truly, forsooth, I find it hard to believe him the same man. "'Many a church member saw I walking behind the music "'that has danced in the same measure with me "'when somebody was fiddler, "'and it might be an Indian pow-wow "'or a Lapland wizard changing hands with us. "'That is but a trifle when a woman knows the world. "'But this minister, couldst thou surely tell, Hester, "'whether he was the same man "'that encountered thee on the forest path?' "'Madam, I know not of what you speak,' answered Hester Prynne. "'feeling Mistress Hibbins to be of infirm mind, "'yet strangely startled and awe-stricken by the confidence "'with which she affirmed a personal connection "'between so many persons, herself among them, and the evil one. "'It is not for me to talk lightly of a learned and pious minister "'of the word like the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale. "'Fie, woman, fie!' cried the old lady. "'shaking her finger at Hester, "'Dost thou think I have been to the forest so many times, "'and have yet no skill to judge who else has been there? "'Yea, though no leaf of the wild garlands "'which they wore while they danced be left in their hair. "'I know thee, Hester, for I behold the token. "'We may all see it in the sunshine, "'and it glows like a red flame in the dark. "'Thou wearest it openly, "'so there need be no question about that. "'But this minister let me tell thee in thine ear.' When the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and sealed, so shy of owning to the bond as is the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, he hath a way of ordering matters, so that the mark shall be disclosed, in open daylight, to the eyes of all the world. What is it that the minister seeks to hide with his hand always over his heart, Ha, huh, Hester Prynne? What is it, good Mistress Hibbins? eagerly asked Little Pearl. Hast thou seen it? No matter, darling, responded Mistress Hibbins, making Pearl a profound reverence. Thou thyself wilt see it one time or another. They say, child, thou art of the lineage of the Prince of the Air. Wilt thou ride with me some fine night to see thy father? Then thou shalt know wherefore the minister keeps his hand over his heart. Laughing so shrilly that all the marketplace could hear her, the weird old gentlewoman took her departure. By this time the preliminary prayer had been offered in the meeting-house and the accents of the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale were heard commencing his discourse. An irresistible feeling kept Hester near the spot. As the sacred edifice was too much thronged to admit another auditor, she took up her position close beside the scaffold of the pillory. It was in sufficient proximity to bring the whole sermon to her ears in the shape of an indistinct but varied murmur and flow of the minister's very peculiar voice. This vocal organ was in itself a rich endowment, insomuch that a listener, comprehending nothing of the language in which the preacher spoke, might still have been swayed to and fro by the mere tone and cadence. Like all other music, it breathed passion and pathos, and emotions high or tender, in a tongue native to the human heart wherever educated. Muffled as the sound was by its passage through the church walls, Hester Prynne listened with such intenseness and sympathized so intimately that the sermon had throughout a meaning for her entirely apart from its indistinguishable words. These, perhaps, if more distinctly heard, might have been only a grosser medium and have clogged the spiritual sense. Now she caught the low undertone, as of the wind sinking down to repose itself, then ascended with it as it rose through progressive gradations of sweetness and power until its volume seemed to envelop her with an atmosphere of awe and solemn grandeur. And yet, majestic as the voice sometimes became, there was forever in it an essential character of plaintiveness, a loud or low expression of anguish, the whisper or the shriek, as it might be conceived, of suffering humanity that touched a sensibility in every bosom. At times this deep strain of pathos was all that could be heard, and scarcely heard sighing amid a desolate silence. But even when the minister's voice grew high and commanding, when it gushed irrepressibly upward, when it assumed its utmost breadth and power, so overfilling the church as to burst its way through the solid walls and diffuse itself in the open air. Still, if the auditor listened intently and for the purpose, he could detect the same cry of pain. What was it? The complaint of a human heart, sorrow-laden, perchance guilty, telling its secret, whether of guilt or sorrow, to the great heart of mankind beseeching its sympathy or forgiveness at every moment, in each accent, and never in vain. It was this profound and continual undertone that gave the clergyman his most appropriate power. During all this time, Hester stood statue-like at the foot of the scaffold. If the minister's voice had not kept her there, there would, nevertheless, have been an inevitable magnetism in that spot, whence she dated the first hour of her life of ignominy. There was a sense within her, too ill-defined to be made a thought, but weighing heavily on her mind, that her whole orb of life, both before and after, was connected with this spot as with the one point that gave it unity. Little Pearl, meanwhile, had quitted her mother's side, and was playing at her own will about the marketplace. She made the somber crowd cheerful by her erratic and glistening ray even as a bird of bright plumage illuminates a whole tree of dusky foliage by darting to and fro, half-seen and half-concealed amid the twilight of the clustering leaves. She had an undulating but oftentimes a sharp and irregular movement. It indicated the restless vivacity of her spirit, which today was doubly indefatigable in its tiptoe dance, because it was played upon and vibrated with her mother's disquietude. Whenever Pearl saw anything to excite her ever-active and wandering curiosity, she flew thitherward, and, as we might say, seized upon that man or thing as her own property, so far as she desired it, but without yielding the minutest degree of control over her motions in requital. The Puritans looked on, and, if they smiled, were none the less inclined to pronounce the child a demon-offspring from the indescribable charm of beauty and eccentricity that shone through her little figure and sparkled with its activity. She ran and looked the wild Indian in the face, and he grew conscious of a nature wilder than his own. Thence, with native audacity, but still with a reserve as characteristic, she flew into the midst of a group of mariners, the swarthy-cheeked wild men of the ocean, as the Indians were of the land, and they gazed wonderingly and admiringly at Pearl, as if a flake of the sea foam had taken the shape of a little maid, and were gifted with a soul of the sea fire that flashes beneath the prow in the night time. One of these seafaring men, the shipmaster indeed, who had spoken to Hester Prynne, was so smitten with Pearl's aspect that he attempted to lay hands upon her with purpose to snatch a kiss, finding it as impossible to touch her as to catch a hummingbird in the air. He took from his hat the gold chain that was twisted about it and threw it to the child. Pearl immediately twined it around her neck and waist, with such happy skill that once seen there it became a part of her, and it was difficult to imagine her without it. "'Thy mother is yonder woman with the scarlet letter,' said the seaman. "'Wilt thou carry her a message from me?' "'If the message pleases me, I will,' answered Pearl." Then tell her, rejoined he, that I spake again with the black-visaged, hump-shouldered old doctor, and he engages to bring his friend, the gentleman she wots of, aboard with him. So let thy mother take no thought save for herself and thee. Wilt thou tell her this, thou witch-baby? Mistress Hibbins says, My father is the prince of the air, cried Pearl with a naughty smile. If thou callest me that ill name, I shall tell him of thee, and he will chase thy ship with a tempest. Pursuing a zigzag course across the marketplace, the child returned to her mother and communicated what the mariner had said. Hester's strong, calm, steadfastly enduring spirit almost sank at last on beholding this dark and grim countenance of inevitable doom, which at the moment when a passage seemed to open for the minister and herself out of their labyrinth of misery, showed itself with an unrelenting smile right in the midst of their path with her mind harassed by the terrible perplexity in which the shipmaster's intelligence involved her. She was also subjected to another trial. There were many people present from the country round about who had often heard of the Scarlet Letter and to whom it had been made terrific by a hundred false or exaggerated rumors, but who had never beheld it with their own bodily eyes. These, after exhausting other modes of amusement, now thronged about Hester Prynne with a rude and boorish intrusiveness. Unscrupulous as it was, however, it could not bring them nearer than a circuit of several yards. At that distance they accordingly stood, fixed there by the centrifugal force of the repugnance which the mystic symbol inspired. The whole gang of sailors, likewise, observing the press of spectators, and learning the purport of the scarlet letter, came and thrust their sunburnt and desperado-looking faces into the ring. Even the Indians were affected by a sort of cold shadow of the white man's curiosity, and gliding through the crowd fastened their snake-like black eyes on Hester's bosom, conceiving, perhaps, that the wearer of this brilliantly embroidered badge must needs be a personage of high dignity among her people. Lastly, the inhabitants of the town, their own interest in this worn-out subject, languidly reviving itself by sympathy with what they saw others feel, "'lounged idly to the same quarter "'and tormented Hester Prynne "'perhaps more than all the rest "'with their cool, well-acquainted gaze "'at her familiar shame. "'Hester saw and recognized "'the self-same faces of that group of matrons "'who had awaited her forthcoming "'from the prison door seven years ago, "'all save one, "'the youngest and only compassionate among them, "'whose burial robe she had since made. "'At the final hour,' when she was so soon to fling aside the burning letter, it had strangely become the center of more remark and excitement, and was thus made to sear her breast more painfully than at any time since the first day she put it on. While Hester stood in that magic circle of ignominy, where the cunning cruelty of her sentence seemed to have fixed her forever, the admirable preacher was looking down from the sacred pulpit upon an audience whose very inmost spirits had yielded to his control the sainted minister in the church, the woman of the scarlet letter in the marketplace. What imagination would have been irreverent enough to surmise that the same scorching stigma was on them both? End of chapter 22.
0: So, we have no idea what Dimmesdale has said, but evidently it was a rousing speech. And you have Hester in her own private hell, very, very publicly. So much so that, you know, the sailors are coming to look and the Native Americans are coming to look. And I like the fact that the Native Americans thought that the Scarlet Letter was, you know, of some importance. Of course, it is beautiful and um, bright. And I thought that was kind of cool. And I suppose some people could interpret it like the, it was Hawthorne making fun of the Native Americans because, oh, they, you know, they didn't even know that the the Scarlet Letter meant this horrible thing, but I kind of, I kind of like to think that it's a way of pointing out that if there were justice in this Puritan society that Hester lived in, because of all the good works she's done and how important she has become in the society, which is acknowledged by everyone, um, that that badge would be uh, a badge of honor instead of one of shame. And ignominy. Um, but, you know, it's it's so hard to know with these older books exactly what was going on in the minds of the author. The sailor thing was kind of creepy. Because, you know, they knew why she was wearing it. And so she's going to have to go on board with these guys. Creepy. And just that casual disdain from the townspeople, I find so repellent. It's just, it's just horrible. And on some level, this chapter reminds me, you know, it's like, it's like when you really had a crush on a guy for a long time, and then you finally start to get to know him and realize that he really isn't who you thought he was. And that kind of, you know, heartbreak or mourning for something that's never even happened. You know, you got close, but it wasn't meant to be. Um, You kind of get that sense with Hester in this chapter, that she's looking at Dimmesdale and he's so far away and remote and distant. He's, you know, the unattainable guy. He's captain of the football team or whatever. But it's it's that kind of heartbreak that's so easy to call up even years away from the last time you felt like that. And it's so, so sad. You know here Dimsdale's had to hide himself for so long and it's done horrible damage to him. and Hester's had to hide the truth as well for so long but she's so much stronger and it's just it's a very, very sad tale at the end except except maybe for the part about Mistress Hibbins) <laughs> I am predisposed to be on the side of the witches, having read The Witch of Blackbird Pond when I was a kid, but I, um, Mistress Hibbins is just not a very nice person, (laughs) and she's, you know, she's always kind of, what's the Yiddish word? There's a Yiddish word for a mixing spoon. What was it? It's kach, kachleifel, kach. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, she's just, she's always in the mix and she's always saying stuff that just kind of, and then Hawthorne comes along and says, oh, and by the way, she'll be dead soon because she's going to get hung for being a witch in the Salem witch trials, just reminding you. And of course, his great, 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 great grandfather was one of the hanging judges, so I guess he would know, hmm? Next week's chapter is really big and I can't wait it almost, I almost want to record the whole thing right now, but we don't have time. So you're just going to have to wait. I'm sorry. There it is. I'm just, I'm just like that. I'm just going to hurt you like that. So sorry. But uh, I hope you have a good week, even though Hester's not. And I hope, I hope that this coming week is a week when dreams come true. I have no idea why I feel that way, but I just, I just, maybe it's because the book was so sad, but I just wish loads and loads of happiness on all of you. You bring so much joy to me and I love, love being able to correspond with you and it's a great gig. So, thank you. Have a great week. I will speak with you soon and when next we speak we will have a really awesome, awesome chapter from the Scarlet Letter*. Take care. And again, to those of you who won the September incentives, congratulations. And um, those will be coming to you soon. Yippee! Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit, visit Knitting Out Loud, listen while you knit, and please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.